0: Good evening everyone. I am Joseph Cotto. I am very pleased to announce that M. Joseph Shepard is joining me tonight. It has been some time since we last conversed. Uh, If you don't know who he is, and I can't imagine why you wouldn't, but uh, he is one of the foremost analysts of polling data, among other phenomena, on Twitter. And as Newsmax said, and as you can see, at least if you're watching this and not just listening, uh, he is one of America's leading pundits. Shep, uh, how's it going?
1: <laughs> I'm doing very fine. Just a little preamble to that, Newsmax. Uh, I think it was in 2012 I said something that Newsmax agreed with, which was that uh at that point, Sarah Palin, uh, before she packed it in, had a chance of getting the Republican nomination. So they lumped me in with four, five leading pundits, <laughs> say Sarah Palin uh, will become president, I think it was. So I'm forever honored with being one of America's five leading pundits. So uh, we'll keep that up there uh, if I can. Joseph, look, um, it's uh, an honor being here, especially given the quality of your uh, previous guests, and with you as an interlocutor. Uh, As you know, I've been reluctant to be on your program, and uh, despite your numerous kind offers, firstly, despite what it says there, I'm of little repute and fame, and I don't think I'd attract the audience you deserve. And secondly, I'm only really comfortable with anything to offer in the confined space of a tweet. Which I believe, or two, which I firmly believe is all required to present a salient point. So I hesitate to believe I'd have enough of value to say in the sort of format. But that said, here we are, so we shall persevere and see if anything of value eventuates. I look forward to a challenging discussion, which we've had in the past. Otherwise, there's no point in in us uh, talking. So to that preamble. I wanted to canvass with you the value, if any, of political discussions in general. Look, for example, uh, we go to MSNBC and we'll see an angry uh, host uh, commence with a red diatribe, with hyperbolic exaggeration, and then he or she will introduce a guest for a duet of more of the same, and then they usually conclude with an ass-sally milk toast ex Republican Trump hater. And then we can reverse that for Fox, of course. These are extreme examples, but uh, still the mainstream media, uh, all of them work within that format to a greater or lesser degree, including supposed public service broadcasting, which I have a particular hate fetish about. Look, what I just described serves various purposes, Uh, the first of which is obviously to make money via red meat pandering. And that's fine, Joseph. That's capitalism. I have no problem with that. And secondly, too propagandized for the liberal establishment in almost every case. And that's it. Uh, Discussions in any sort of media are money and propaganda. Most certainly, there's no intention uh, of presenting facts, especially in a (laughs) mythically even-handed way. Uh, So any facts that slip in are purely by accident. So I put it to you that anything beyond, say, three tweets on a subject is superfluous and petty. Anything said on TV or blogs is utterly forgotten in three days at most, As and as pleasurable um, as our conversation here is, it too will be forgotten in a few days. So all media, as currently constructed, is dross, ephemeral, and a waste of time. Unless one enjoys partisan reinforcement, during an idle hour, but that's a uh, nexus in self-development. So in all honesty, do you see any value uh, in this sort of format? Not just yours, of course, but um, well, while I'm on, it does have value. Uh, but surely no minds are ever changed, and it's just capitalism. Uh, and Yes, yeah, basic capitalism and promoting the leftist agenda.
0: Well, uh, obviously, I'm not here, and you know that uh, to promote a leftist agenda. But yeah. uh, what I yeah, what, what I'm doing here, I think, is unique because it's a long form discussion uh and that allows for issues to be addressed in a substantive and open-ended way as opposed to what you see on cable news where you know they have a hard time limit and they have to get as many sound bites in as possible because they you know obviously chop up the interview and post it on the internet uh what i do is post the entire conversation i don't chop it up into bits and post the video i post the entire conversation and you bring up a very good point people tend to forget about things pretty quickly on cable TV, I believe you said three days. And uh, my interviews, uh, they are around for now a two week period, Uh, sometimes a bit more. Uh, So I'm constantly posting them. I take notes during the show, which I've already started doing, and I- uh, post notes about what's in the show and so people can watch it uh and even if they've seen the video they think they know what's in it if they read a note about something that perhaps they had not realized with regard to the discussion they might watch it and they do watch that's how these things get a lot of viewership obviously there's a capitalistic element even though my show does not have any commercials that uh you know uh there there's no uh sponsor for the uh for the 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 program but uh you know capitalism does factor into the media and uh soon enough i I do hope to get uh not reader excuse me viewer tips or reader tips if they like what i write on twitter whatever but you know uh like you i have nothing against capitalism so this isn't a downside the downside uh for me Uh, when it comes to interviews, is that most of them, as you mentioned, are uh, garbage uh, because of the manner in which they're carried out. It's very much partisan red meat being thrown. And uh, that's not what I do. As people who watch the show know, uh, we really get into issues and quite often my guests or myself will say something that I imagine is going to aggravate a good deal of my following, but I post it anyway. Sometimes I even draw yeah. attention to it because the idea is to present information that I believe people need to know about events which have relevance uh, to their lives. So that's where I'm coming from. I, so I don't think our conversation at all uh, is is a waste of time. I think that it, I'm sure it will be uh, valued uh, into the new year, as a matter of fact. And uh, quite a few people will learn something new from it uh you pose a very good question because it's something that all people who do shows should confront whether or not they're bringing anything of value to the table essentially that i think is at the core of your question or, or and, if any uh, minds uh, are think... ever
1: right, or if any minds are ever changed uh, and if they're not um mm-hmm. where is the value
0: well, you know, that's uh, interesting because I don't do what I do to change minds. I do what I do to inform people about events. And if they change their mind after they're informed, that's nice. But I don't imagine that they're going to change their mind because they hear some really snappy monologue from me mm-hmm. or uh, a, a, a guest's a very good answer to a question. Uh, what I think might happen is that uh, either or winds up introducing them to a new perspective and they think about it over time and perhaps they'll reach a more comprehensive view of whatever issue it is at hand uh, but no I, I, I it's not an advocacy show I'm definitely not here to uh, reinforce a certain worldview nor am I here to persuade people
1: right um, what I'm seeing more and more, and more is um, I don't watch Fox anymore or I don't watch MSNB so I I, th- I think what I was stating in the preamble, um, is becoming the wider viewpoint bit by bit. Uh, I, I think that uh, people know that these shows, these programs are basically just absolute red meat propaganda and an insult to their intelligence, basically. And uh, your niche sort of um, product, if I can use that term, um, in the day in the days now of the internet um, has value, but the wider media, in general, is an absolute load of rubbish. Even the BBC, which I, I watch regularly is supposed to be um, independent in this great uh, uh, you know legacy institution. It's entirely biased. It's been biased uh, to the Middle East, except Israel, for decades. And you can see that in, in their broadcasting and by the tenor of the guests they bring on. And public service broadcasting is... Is a joke. I don't know if you've ever seen Canadian public service broadcasting, but oh, that's yeah. uh, that's even worse. Their two thousand sixteen uh, election night show about America with uh, David Frum was unbelievably uh, leftist biased. So there is no, you can't turn on the TV and expect to be told the truth. That's quite quite simple. If you approach it from yes, I I'm a you know I'm an absolute trumpist. I'm going to watch. Uh, Fox News all the time, well good for you you're you're getting reinforcement Mm -hmm. uh, but there's better things to spend your time on in my Mm -hmm. opinion so that's good now I want to progress on um, to to conservatism and you're going to have to um, indulge me a bit because it's only, I want to read just a page um, which is a commentary on C.S. Lewis it's a classic Christian conservative Mm -hmm and um, it's the most vehement attack on Christian um, conservatism that I've ever read and I was quite struck by it which led me to um, write my um, Substack article Raise High the Banner of Reaction and uh, so look just bear with me I'll read this to you it's only a page and then because without it we can't progress so here we go So commentary on C.S. Lewis A non-trivial number of the leaders of America's legacy conservative, in quotation marks, institutions, are either liars or fools. If they are right about the centrality of initiative, enterprise, industry, and thrift to a sound economy and healthy society, the soul-sapping effects of paternalistic big government and its cannibalization of civil society and religious institutions, the necessity of a strong defense and prudent statements in the international sphere and about the importance of this to national health and even survival, then they must believe that we are headed off a cliff in italics. If a post-constitutional America arrives, whether managerial, caesarist, tyrannical, tribal, it will be in a very large degree your fault. I want to emphasize that. It will be your fault as, as a conservative. That is to say, the fault is not just of the left, which since around 1875 has sought to overturn the American constitutional order, but of the, of the left's allies and lickspittles on the right, quotation marks, who failed to stop the assault of the conservative, who assured us it would never come to this, or worse, who welcomed each anti-constitutional change as the new status quo for conservatives to conserve. Last paragraph. So present trends will continue until they don't or can no longer if prevailing arrangements are allowed to run their logical course. Those trends will destroy not everyone and everything they care about, and it will if the conservatives who work every day to preserve and accelerate the status quo keep getting their way. So I will comment, a conservatism, as just defined, which seeks to preserve the structure and order such as it is now, is a complete bust. Only a dedication by new administration to a genuine reactionary populist agenda can be meaningful going forward. Every other option is a band-aid on a gangrenous sore. And I put it to you, those who hold to conservatism, Rockefeller republicanism, they are the problem, and you yourself, sir, are the problem. So there's a lot there, but I wanted to make that very, very clear that conservatism, which battles a little bit with progressive mindset and progressive legislation and then accepts it as the new status quo, has got us to where we are and is a uh, gangrenous sore on the body politic, on religion, on ethics, and on morality. And that includes uh, the... Republican Party, uh, the Bushite Republican Party, and only a uh, populist reactionary party, reactionary uh, agenda, can try and halt that. So, um, not a personal attack on you, Joseph, but it is an attack on what I perceive as a uh, mm. framework that you uh, you live live in in your political view.
0: Well, I think that an interesting point here is that uh, populism has value because it responds to the needs of people. And as I've always said, I am a populist leading Rockefeller Republican. I did support Trump and I still support him. I've supported uh, his candidacy since he rode down the escalator in the summer of 2015. Uh, He himself is sort of a uh, rehashed Rockefeller Republican, he even identified himself as such uh, to Larry King on CNN, and uh, he manages to synthesize a lot of interesting approaches to timely issues, and this endears him to a broad swath of the electorate—not uh, to say a majority, but certainly a sizable minority—so that. Now, uh, with uh, the unpopularity of Biden, he has managed to find himself in a very advantageous position despite all of his legal troubles and, of course, uh, attitudes people hold about him from long before uh, any of the uh, indictments came around. So I I think that uh, there is no question that the Republican Party, as it was constituted before Donald Trump, was a, a shambolic institution. I am very much opposed to what I call shrubism or uh, the machinist ideology or Romney Ryanism because none of this stuff was getting the job done for people. Was not representing their views or articulating their concerns in a uh, reasonable way, or if at all. Uh, so th- these this previous or these previous iterations of the GOP uh, have been failures. Uh, I'm glad to see Trumpism come around. I've been glad about it from the beginning. And uh, I I definitely uh, don't expect people to adopt Rockefeller Republicanism, even though Trump for sure is an outgrowth of that. Uh, Obviously, Trumpism is something unique. It's not Rockefeller Republicanism or Romney Ryanism or anything like that. But uh, it does come out of the Rockefeller Republican vein, Mm -hmm. although it takes on a life of its own in dealing with issues of the late 20th and early 21st centuries. And I think that's a fine thing. Uh, you have to have a movement like that, uh, which is uh, w- which deals with issues as they are, and, and perhaps more importantly, one which deals with people as they are. This is a big failure of uh, previous GOP incarnations in that they uh, – were very much lost, waiting in their own weeds, so to speak. And it's good to see them falling away.
1: Right. Um, Conservatism um, uh, is in the dustbin of history, except it doesn't know it's dead yet. That's the problem. It's still lingering with um, (laughs) Sununu's and all the people who are supporting uh, Nikki Haley um, and uh, and. and, and the last dregs of the uh, conservative movement uh, for what it was worth, and it wasn't worth uh, very much either. Um, what, the, what a um, populist reaction ideology in practicality in respect of uh, policy is uh, to be determined. Um, unfortunately, the economy is always the thing which stops um, any sort of social change. Because if the economy degenerates on, on you or you get a, a black swan like COVID, um, then you've got to pay your attention to that because people always uh, vote on their um, on their pocketbook and the cost of living. So, um, But over time, uh, an ideology has to be developed. Otherwise, you're just reinforcing the what has failed over and over again, and you might as well stay home and not vote. So uh, as you know, and as I wrote, I've been on a one-man campaign to rescue uh, reactionarism from the political graveyard. That's been assigned in history to people who are, um, uh, want to start wars or who are um, against any sort of social proger- progress. But that's just uh, nonsense. But while this in the background, over time, every other ism, Marxism, fascism, National Socialism, just plain Socialism, They've all had their time on the left, and every single one, and with fellow travelers, every single one of them has failed. And uh, fortunately, reactionary doesn't need any assistance of the above isms, which have caused, as you know, untold maybe hundreds of millions of deaths and wrecked lives uh, because of uh, adhering to to that. So I defined reactionary from um, Wikipedia, and in a sentence... It says, reactionary process opposes policies for the social transformation of society, whereas conservatives seek to preserve the social economic structure in order that exists in the present. In popular usage, reactionary refers to a strong traditionalist, conservative, political perspective of a person opposed to social, political, and economic change. Well, look, I'm, I'm happy with most of that, but of course... <laughs> Nobody is opposed to all social and political and economic change. That's just um, ridiculous. Nobody wants to go back to before, which is the definition of uh, post societal anti of, um, of society, where the women had no rights and there was slavery and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, we want, we actually want the best of the status quo ante, which includes a strong moral and religious element without imposing a strong and moral religious um, element. So the current status quo has got myriads of flaws, which again, I think only a populist reactionary administration can address. Um, if you ignore the um, aspects under, say, Lyndon Johnson in Vietnam, which was the starting point of moral social implosion, with this denigration of uh, traditional values and the trust, the lack of trust in government, Uh, that's where we are now because of uh, the election of 1964. Not that Goldwater would have been, he would have been dangerous frankly, but the values which he was the last bastion of, in retrospect were a million times better than what Lyndon Johnson, apart from the Civil Rights Act, uh, and and not even him, he was a puppet of the Harvard clique um, just like G.W. Bush was a uh, a puppet of uh, Cheney and the globalists who are a uh, universal curse. So America was never so prosperous except when we had um, uh, protectionism and uh, non-globalism. So um, in my opinion, a reactionary um, policy is the, the way to go forward. And um, I'll leave that to you to put your opinion on, but that's where I stand.
0: Sure. No, you have to have uh, popul- populism because at the end of the day, people vote and they want their issues to be heard and they want their voices yep. to be uh they want their voices to be shared. It's not just heard, you know, because somebody can say, "I hear you," and then they give you the middle finger. Uh, but they want people want their voices to be relayed. They want to have something come about from their advocacy, whatever it is they care about. Uh, And the GOP has been notoriously bad at this, whereas the Democrats uh, were populist, but in a different direction, although now they certainly are not. Now uh, it's kind of interesting, the parties have switched in this regard. Uh, The GOP is much more receptive to the interests of its voters. You see this especially at the local and state levels, uh, and more and more at the uh, federal level. And the Democrats are much more, you could say, elite. They're much more interested in what a certain clique thinks and imposing that on the masses. And that's a big reason we're going to get into polling, obviously. But that's a big yeah. reason why they're doing so badly right now, especially with Blacks, uh, and, it's, and it's particularly Black males. Uh, so it, it's really an interesting state of affairs because the Democrats now have a sort of high-handed pseudo-Brahmin uh, motif, even though none, you know, these people are by and large not blue-blooded, but they have taken a sort of a blue-blood uh, approach to politics and that They believe they are the ones who have the answers and everyone else is just there uh, to deal with that. A good example is what happened in Chicago, wherein you have the sanctuary city policy that uh, is very good for illegal aliens, but not good for the people who live in Chicago. And most people in Chicago now oppose it. And the board of aldermen and the mayor... Oppose the people having a say in a referendum next year on whether or not to continue this uh, sanctuary city policy. You don't need me to tell you which party runs Chicago lock, suck and barrel as it has uh, for now almost a century. So it, it, it's really interesting to see this approach in the Democratic Party. Also here in Florida, the state Democrats did a uh, really underhanded uh, loophole maneuver to shut out Joe Biden's primary challengers from appearing on the ballot in you know next year's primary. So this is the great examples of how the Democrats now have changed. They've become what the Republicans used to be, this very sort of... Uh, rarified uh, so-called refined organization that has ideas that it wants to inflict on others. Uh, it's very much top-down, whereas the GOP is more bottom-up.
1: Uh, with respect, you haven't addressed my point, which was that the from 1964 under the Democrats, they have completely destroyed the ethical, moral, social construct of America be- Well, under Kennedy and Eisenhower, which is a a faraway country, a different planet, a different place. And since then, the the intrinsic core of liberalism ends up in destroying values of the common man's values to replace it with values of extreme um, progressivism, which uh, always turns out badly. Would you not uh, uh, agree with that?
0: I do agree with that. Uh, Speaking of this, obviously, the Great Society was the the foremost tool because it destroyed the nuclear family and it made the government take the paternal role. And once that happened, people were open to, number one, doing whatever the government told them. But number two, accepting a paradigm in which the uh, traditional family unit was no longer necessary. And that made them open to new ideas, which are generally speaking of a highly destructive nature. Uh, And that's where things are today. Uh, If one looks at how the family unit reacts to uh, the government taking the paternal role, uh, it is a profoundly negative matter. Uh, It's awful. It really is. And it was awful shortly after the Great uh, Society started. It's not like this just happened over the last 20 years. Uh, It's really something that people did not think about at the time of the Great Society, or if they did think of that, they did not care, which on the surface level, most would say, well, we probably didn't know this. Most would probably say, well, we didn't know this would happen. But I think the intellectuals behind it very much knew what would happen. Uh, And uh, this is it's highly unfortunate. You know, if you look at the consequences of, of this uh, rot, which you're talking about, uh, it, back in the day in the black community, there was a shockingly high degree of not only intact families, but uh, businesses, small businesses owned by people in a certain community and the community patronized these businesses. And uh, it produced a, a, by today's standards, shockingly good uh, domestic economy among American blacks. Today, that's very much a thing of the past. Uh, Most black communities, whatever economic activity goes on in them is owned by outsiders. Uh, And this came about after, obviously, the Great Society, because once the family broke down, the traditional family. Once that broke down, uh, people stopped acting as they had, and they looked to the government, and that destroyed the spirit of entrepreneurship, at least in a legitimate sense. Unfortunately, a lot of people in the uh, in these communities took to illegitimate entrepreneurship, like you know, drug dealing, so on and so forth. Uh, and that's where things are today uh, in these areas. It's 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 very sad. But the rot you speak of is very real. I certainly don't have a counterpoint to your perspective.
1: The, uh, uh, the biggest insult I think ever made was people in flyover country. You, you can't get more um, arrogant than that, but that runs through Hillary Clinton and deplorables, all that sort of stuff. So um, they are a pox and uh, their ideology is a gangrenous sore. I'll leave it at that. Now, you wanted to discuss polling, which I'm very happy to do, and I I'm no sophologist, even hardly say the word uh, like Richard Barris um, and uh, Rasmussen who, people I respect um, I've been around long enough and I believe I can look at the daughter objectively which I think sort of sets me apart from a lot of people on Twitter and uh, so firstly this statement which one sees so often on Twitter which is all polls are useless. Well, that's 100% correct when if they show the, the candidate candidate's support is behind in them, then, of course, all polls are, are, are useless. Uh, but, of course, that's nonsensical. And the other one which is nonsensical is polls taken a year out from an election are useless. Uh, first of all, if we note that, obviously, polls are a snapshot in time, uh, then they serve the messaging of campaigns. For example, uh, we're now reading that Biden's team must look at their messaging in light of polls. Uh, Whether that's now too late or they don't have any alternate messaging is beside the point. And then they're saying uh, Trump is a fascist dictator and will destroy democracy. But clearly the polls this far out have served a purpose and it would be stupid particularly by political campaigns, to ignore them. So those first two things are utterly wrong. Polls um, do matter, uh, and um, they're not useless, and snapshot in time serve so a very important purpose as well. So that's the first point. Uh, mm-hmm. If you have anything to add to that, um, fine. Oh, secondly, no, I, I, I
0: agree, obviously, Chicago, Sir, mm-hmm. Sir go ahead.
1: No, secondly, if uh, if polls in 68 in November and 1980 both showed uh, uh, Reagan 10 points ahead of Mondale and McGovern to advise uh, they were also meaningless, would be utterly stupid as well. And then we move on to the polls failed completely in 2016 and the so-called red wave of 2022. What actually failed, as you well know, was the political and pundit class on both sides reading into numbers they uh, wanted to to suit their biases. In 2016, the final aggregate at real core politics was Clinton plus 3.2, and the margin of error, which nobody looks at, was about 3%. So the election was tied, or was slightly in Trump's favor, which it was, and her actual popular vote win was 2.1. So the polls were exactly right with margin of error, which doesn't make a horse race and which uh, doesn't suit the red red meat you want to throw. So those are the three uh, preambles that uh, I wanted to cover with you.
0: So if I could just uh, clarify before we move on, your perspective is that uh, polling uh, in 2016, uh, that it wasn't off so much as it was that people misread the numbers. Is that correct?
1: Uh, People who should have known better were writing and reporting with confirmation bias because they saw a, a Clinton lead and they couldn't bring themselves to believe that Trump could actually win. Uh, they they ignored what should be it, standard uh, journalistic practice and look at the margin of error. If somebody has a two and a half or three point lead and the yeah, margin that, of that error, that they did. Yeah. yeah, if the margin error is three three percent, well, then it's a tied race, and if the Democrat is two points ahead, and they need, like uh, Biden did, five points ahead of the popular vote to scrape by by 40,000 votes. Then a 2% lead by a, a Democrat, uh, a likely, all things being equal, uh, Republican win. Again, with the midterms. And, sorry, carry on, Joseph. Oh, no, actually, I was going
0: to ask about the midterms. Please go
1: ahead. Okay, here we go. The great screaming from people on Twitter whenever a poll comes up saying, "Ah, ha-ha, the midterms, where was the red wave? The midterms were uh, all polling failed. Well, it it didn't. The uh, generic popular vote was um, Republicans 2.5, and the actual result was Republicans 2.8. You could not get better result than that, 0.3% off. In a nationwide aggregation of all polls. So 2.8 was not enough to uh, produce the red wave, which the right was so energized about. But although it, brought it did bring a House majority, uh, because there are fewer marginal seats. What both parties have done is they shored up <laughs> their own seats in Congress by gerrymandering to make sure that they have huge majorities, or hard, very hard to overcome unless you've got a mass Wave, so there were very very few uh, competitive seats um, for people to uh, to try and overturn. And then, for some inexplicable reason, which I know that you were quite uh, hot about, the Republicans thought that abortion was a would wouldn't be a hot button issue, and when it was so raw, so close to Roe being overturned in females voters' minds. And then there was some terrible uh, get out the vote. Uh, well, there was hardly any, and really awful uh, candidate uh, selections, which contributed to what was a red trickle. So the polls were exactly correct if you take the parameters that anyone who has um, any claims to be an intelligent uh, looker at, um, at at what polls are showing.
0: Very good analysis there. No question. Uh, 2022 was, of course, a a big disappointment for the GOP. I was not terribly surprised by it. Uh, Most of my official predictions panned out, uh, but uh, I did get a few notable ones wrong. However, I did not think the GOP, and I'm sure you remember me seeing this, remember seeing this from me on Twitter. Uh, I yep. said that the GOP would not do terribly, terribly well uh, because of this abortion issue it was going to motivate Democratic turnout uh, massively, and it did. Although the caveat is. This was especially true in states where it was uh, where abortion rights were imperiled because of Roe, uh, yep. or in states where there was not a rep the possibility for a referendum being on the ballot. Uh, well, referendum is obviously on the ballot, but uh, the, the, the fact of the matter is in Kansas, and this was a big shortcoming of Richard Barris's, uh, he thought that the anti abortion perspective in the referendum there would succeed, and as people might recall, this uh referendum took place a few months before uh, the midterms. And it, it, it the referendum uh, was a massive victory for the pro-choice side, as I thought it would be. But what happened in Kansas a few months later is that there was no Democratic surge. Uh, there was certainly a Democratic surge for the referendum, a massive one but the democrats who were really fired up about abortion rights we got they vented their spleen so to speak uh in the late summer and by the earl by the fall they were just basically like whatever and the republicans had a very good showing in kansas and this surely is going to repeat itself in ohio where the democrats had a big showing uh last month uh but now we head into 2024 Uh, it looks very unlikely that they'll have any sort of decent performance at all. Uh, So the thing for the GOP when it comes to abortion is that once it is handled via referendum, or once uh, a state Supreme Court rules as part of the Constitution, the issue does go away. It doesn't go away entirely, but it goes away in terms of something that can completely wreck an election cycle. Uh, But a lot of Republicans are very much opposed to these referenda or to, uh, you know, uh, state Supreme Court's ruling that abortion is protected under the Constitution uh, because these Republicans are still holding out for a massive uh, anti-abortion victory. And this, uh, before I get into some stuff about polling and Joe Biden, which is fascinating. You wrote an article on your Substack page. I should tell everyone you do have a Substack page. Uh, People should check it out. Uh, Just type in Google M. Joseph Shepard, S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D, and then Substack, and his page will come up. But you did run on the 8th of December a very interesting article, which I believe I retweeted, uh, titled, Anti-Abortion Advocates, Take the W and Go Home. And beneath the title are the words, Extremism and the Defense being pro-life is no virtue this relates absolutely to what i was talking about if you wouldn't mind addressing this ship i think that'd be a great idea
1: all right i just want to i'm glad you brought up ohio because it just annoys me you've got all these uh liberal pundits saying despite biden's low polling democrats have done extremely well in the elections since the midterms. And they keep bringing up Ohio. But that wasn't an election. That was a, uh, a referendum. And so was Kansas. And both of them will have no bearing on the uh, general election uh, coming up. And also, I noticed that in Kansas, um, just a few weeks back, uh, they had a, a by-election for, for a congressional seat. And the woman who won, they slaughtered the uh, Democrat and did better than Trump did In that particular congressional seat. And they don't mention also uh, the Louisiana governorship race, which was the Democratic Party has imploded in Louisiana. And um, I think the the black community either stayed home or voted for uh, Landry, the uh, Republican. So those things get passed over and they're basically dishonest. Uh, Before, look, I will come back to very important. Uh, points you were making on abortion because I've got that coming up. I just want to finish on because um, the other thing beside the margin of error, which so many people just seem to not understand, is they look at a poll and it's great for their candidate or deleterious for their candidate and they are happy or or sad. But an individual poll or even a couple of individual polls are meaningless. Only the aggregation of polling is meaningful, and as I showed you with the midterms and with 2016 and many other examples, the aggregation was what, if you include the March of Error, was absolutely correct. So it is the only mm-hmm. unbiased method of examining political races, and so and also you look at trend lines as well. If you're a long way from an election. And you're looking at aggregations, then you have to look at what is the trend line within the parameters of the uh, of the aggregation, which is important as well. So um, this the other thing people struggle with when they see a poll, they don't look at who is being polled. So if they see a poll of all voters, that's basically a meaningless poll, because a large percentage of those people will never vote. So all voting polls are, are meaningless. Um, Registered voters is better because that's a pool of voters who have had a history of voting. And then you've got likely voters, which is the only really uh, uh, correct way of looking at it. And and uh, people keep uh, attacking my good friend Rasmussen for showing uh, Biden above everyone else. He's always doing a likely voters poll. And even there, he says, look at what the aggregate of the month of my likely voters polling is and then you'll get a more accurate figure So when you look at just before an election, you'll still see people say a month out using all voters, which is a way of um, distorting polling towards Democrats and then a few weeks later they switch to registered voters, which gives a more balanced view and then about a week before the election, every single one of them will switch to likely voters because they they're hurting. They don't want to be different from the rest. And they want to try and keep their reputation uh, such as it is. So it's a big scam. If, if they start with all voters and then they go to registered, they should be likely voters all the way through. But that, that's how it is. And uh, much as uh, people hate on Nate Silver, he made a very important point that the only honest poll is the one two weeks before an election when the posters give their honest poll And then after that, they heard and gave gave the poll, which um, is basically the same as everyone else, so they don't stand out uh, from, uh, from everybody else. The other thing, well, no, I'll just digest that and comment if you want, and then I'll move on sure
0: no as goes the all voter polls you mentioned are most commonly referred to as adult polls so when you see a poll that says 2600 respondents it's very rarely that high it says a next one that means adult and sometimes you'll see lv yeah. that means likely voters and that's very important and then rv is registered voters, because a lot of times it, it, it the, the polls are uh presented as such where they just have the abbreviations and people most people have no idea what the hell this stuff amounts to uh but you're absolutely correct poll that are of all or, or of adults, they can include and do include non-citizens, uh, people who uh, are let their voter registration lapse, people who uh, have no intention of voting whatsoever. Uh, and these polls do favor Democrats because the Democrats tend to have traditionally more disengaged voters than Republicans do. And people who uh, are ineligible to vote for whatever reason do tend to skew, at least in their preference, their theoretical preference, Democratic. Yeah. Now, a really interesting point, obviously, is when you brought up of, of the polling scam, how uh, it's only within the last two weeks that the polls are uh, really uh, serious and that obviously when they... the the pollsters switch to doing likely voters. Uh, That's how you know uh, it's worth listening to. But why, in your opinion, do pollsters in earlier stages of election season uh, have these far out numbers that have no real insight on where the
1: race stands? Um, If one was being unkind, one would say you'd have to look at who pays the pollsters. um, And in many, many instances, um, they're sponsored by Uh, partisan um, organizations, uh, campaigns, uh, hidden dark money. So uh, without saying they're corrupt, um, they're human and polls, which I'll cover shortly, are are very expensive. So I would imagine there's a degree of, of, of that there. And also I think they want to, if somebody is polling for a media company like Fox If you have a registered voters poll, you can uh, make the poll work for the company that you're reporting for. And I noticed that uh, a number of, I think, RCP, uh, particularly uh, 538, put a um, D or an R next to posters now, which is good because you can judge, well, it's a registered voters poll. It's run by a a Democratic-sponsored or leaning organization. And you can take it for a grain of salt, uh, but that's where aggregation comes in, because um, it smooths out all these distortions, and in the end, aggregation has been proven to be almost always right, just like me. So that's uh, a good thing to uh, to uh, to watch. The other thing I want to cover, Joseph, is that's general polling, but uh, in in my opinion, state polling is notoriously bad, and currently. Bloomberg and uh, another outfit had Trump leading in all seven um, battleground states, which is great. I, I like to look at that. But I always take state polling with a grain of salt. And these leads are 2% and 3%, 2.5%. So they're bound to be within the margin of error. And Biden could be leading in every one of them if he took in the, the margin of error. But state polling is, is appalling. Uh, In general, Uh, Barris um, just put on a uh, table of polling from Morning Consult uh, for the 2020 elections. It had about, I think, about 12 states. And in every single instance, the Republican or Trump vote was below what actually happened, whereas the Democratic vote was about what, what happened. They just can't poll Republicans correctly in in states, it it just can't be done. I, I you know it may be the nature that in on the state level, people tell pollsters to uh, get stuffed, and and Republicans mm-hmm. don't trust them, which is good thinking. Um And so and this was the instance of um, remember the one from ABC, which had in twenty twenty um, uh, Biden up seventeen points in Wisconsin. You know, he, why a poll would even put that sort of thing out. Yes. And Biden won by under 1%. So state polling is terrible. And even at the close, even if they do likely voters, um, it's still very, very hard to get it right. I understand from reading what posters are saying that it's very expensive to do a state poll and to do it properly, um, even for local, like a poster in Wisconsin, it's even hard for them to do it. So uh, the aggregate uh, is the only best guide we can get, but even still with state polls, uh, uh, it's still not right. So in some, uh, I just tell listeners, never get too excited or saddened by any one or two polls. If you just follow the rules that I outlined um, and the aggregate is your friend or enemy as the case may be, we well, can get uh, sad or happy if you've looked at the aggregate. But if you don't look at the aggregate, then you're, you're just hitting yourself over the head. So uh, the other final thing is the uh, black vote. In 2020, a lot of pollsters were coming out with these unbelievable numbers for black support for Trump, 40%, 38%, but um, that didn't materialize because there was no underlying reason why the black vote should have switched to the Republican to that uh, degree particularly with the post-COVID and all that sort of stuff and I was reading, I think it was from uh, Cohen and Barris that if you look at the subset of a poll and you look at Hispanics or you look at blacks because there's relatively few numbers um, the results can be quirky so I think that's what happened in 2020 but they made the point and I hope, hope I'm quoting them correctly that if you do an aggregate of 10 such polls, you'll get a number of black voters, which is equal or equivalent to a standard poll. So it uh, took a long time because a lot of polls don't do their um, subsets. But I found over the last three weeks, 13 pollsters who did. And the aggregate of black support for Trump is currently 20, around 22%. Now, I believe that. Uh, It doesn't mean it's going to be 22% on election day, but there is a reason now for black voters, and you'd be blind not the um, black voices or hear the black voices and see the black people in the media who are switching to Trump. In the arts too, which is very important because they're opinion makers. So let's discount that by, let's say, 22. Let's take um, six points off that on election day. Okay, so we're looking at 16%. If Trump got 16% of the black vote, this would be a landslide election. Because of where the black vote is, we're looking at Detroit, Milwaukee, Mm -hmm. Philadelphia, etc. So 16% there, plus stay-at-homes. He got the stay-at-homes, we got the stay-at-homes. People stayed at home in 2016. I think those Mm -hmm. black voters will either support Trump higher or a mixture of staying at home, even bigger numbers. And vote for Trump. So, sixteen percent. So, I believe that twenty-two percent is at this point in time, and sixteen percent. I absolutely believe he will get sixteen percent. McCain got four percent, and it's been progressing to twelve percent for Trump. So, there is a movement going that way, and I think it's going to be really shown up um, in in the in the next election. And just finally on the current Trump polling. He never led once in any poll in 2020, and he led for two days in uh, 2016. And now from September 13th, he's been ahead of Biden and increasingly bit by bit is pulling away from Biden. So that at this point of time is correct in my, my opinion because it's um, it's approaching margin of error levels and it's been over time. So... I think that's that's very much the case. So that's my overview of polling. Disregard state polling as much as possible. Uh, don't get upset or uh, or too happy if you see polls that you like, um, but you can if the aggregation is showing uh, one way or the other.
0: All that is fascinating, obviously. Uh, and I, I, I will add one thing before I get into how polling is factoring with uh, Biden, uh, the, there is a massive difference uh, in addition to uh, between the types of polling we've discussed, you know, adults, likely voter, registered voter. There is a massive difference between private polling and public polling. Private polling has to be as accurate as possible because people uh, commission it in order to strategize. They want to know where a race stands, no matter how good or bad the numbers might be for them. Now, public polling uh, is not necessarily done with accuracy in mind. I have seen uh, some polling firms who literally on the same week, they, they, they when their private polling is released, the numbers in terms of the composition of who's being polled is different from the public poll they did. Uh, and it's because public polling, which is for media outlets, uh, you know, universities do it themselves, uh, these polls are intended to drive a narrative. And that's very important. People pay to have a narrative because it creates stories that they like, and that influences <clears throat> individuals, and it makes money, clicks, viewership, uh, boils down to advertising revenue. But uh, pollsters absolutely have one policy for private polling, which is done for strategy, and another policy for public polling, which is done for uh, public relations. Chef, uh, before I move on to, to talking about uh, the Biden situation, anything to say about what I just brought up?
1: No I think you're uh, absolutely correct if you were a, um, a company which provided that sort of polling and you tweaked it to uh, your client <coughs> sorry to their favor and it didn't it turned out diametrically opposite you wouldn't be in business for very long so um, our good friend capitalism uh makes them honest because they have to do their very best to get it get it right so no that's absolutely correct
0: mm-hmm. yep. Just yeah, just uh, want to bring okay, that cool. up now. about, thank you, absolutely. Talking about uh, Joe Biden, the situation with him. Uh, I'll I'll get to three articles here. I'll get Shep's opinion on it. Then we'll begin to, unfortunately, close out this very high quality discussion. But uh, published at Fox News today. Biden approval rating sinks to all-time low in new national poll. Only one-third of Americans gave President Biden a thumbs-up on the job he is doing in the White House, according to a new national public opinion survey. The president stands at 34% approval in a Monmouth University poll released on Monday, with 61% giving Biden a thumbs-down on his job performance. The president's approval is at an all-time low in Monmouth polling since Biden took over the White House nearly three years ago. Okay, another article that came out today, Biden again insists he's not behind in the polls. This was published in Politico. President Joe Biden's Uh poll numbers have been getting worse in recent months, often showing him tied with or trailing former President Donald Trump by a few points. But according to Biden, the media is just focusing on the wrong polls. Three times now in a little over a month, Biden has dismissed polls that show him trailing Trump or other potential GOP rivals and insisted Uh that reporters aren't getting the full Picture. Now for the third article. This one is published also today in the Washington Post. Biden said to be increasingly frustrated by dismal poll numbers. The night before President Biden departed Washington to celebrate Thanksgiving on Nantucket, Massachusetts, he gathered his closest aides for a meeting in the White House residence. After pardoning a pair of turkeys, an annual White House tradition, Biden delivered some stern words for the small group assembled. His poll numbers were unacceptably low, and he wanted to know what his team and campaign were doing about it. He complained that his economic message had done little to move the ball, even as the economy was growing and unemployment was falling. According to people familiar with his comments, who spoke on the condition of anonymity to discuss a private conversation. For months, the President and First Lady Jill Biden have told aides and friends they are frustrated by the President's low approval rating in the polls that show him trailing former President Donald Trump, the front runner for the Republican nomination. Mm-hmm. And in recent weeks, they have grown upset that they are not making money. how polling is uh, treated in public and private. I started out by talking about Biden's very low, uh, record low per Monmouth approval rating. Then obviously I brought up Biden saying, "No, the polls really don't matter. That's what he said uh, to the cameras. But then behind closed doors, he's saying, these polls really matter. And what the hell are we doing about it? So this is integral because people have to see how polls are treated by those in power. You see so many folks on Twitter getting into a tizzy over this poll, that poll, the other thing, yeah. but uh, the, the people who actually make decisions, uh, they tend to look at, as Shep was saying, the aggregate, because you know, Biden's angry at a whole bunch of polls showing him uh, in a bad position. Uh, yeah. and then, of course, he tells the media that the polls don't matter, and uh, on the same day that those two stories broke, there is the uh, his all-time low approval rating. So it's 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 something else. People really need to not get crazy about a specific survey. And just because the people who, uh, who would seem to be on the losing end of this survey look to be all cool, all smiles. Uh, totally fine with things in public, doesn't that behind closed doors, so they're not worried about the broader situation. Uh, they're not just worried about the one poll, just like Biden is not probably freaking out about the new Monmouth poll alone, but in concert with the other data, which has been coming in for some time, uh, he is nervous, despite what he told the media. Uh, so it's fascinating. This is really a, a lesson in what polling amounts to. Uh, it's 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 something that a lot of people don't understand very well but they should uh, and I'll just leave that there chef anything to say
1: yeah no you it's absolutely correct and what you've just said uh, has been canvassed and covered by our previous uh, uh, discussion and basically Tyson they're getting internal polls which are showing uh, things are really bad so uh, but they, they don't need an internal poll for that. They just have to look at uh, all the other polls and they can see that clearly. Um, I'm, we did cover very effectively uh, abortion in respect of politics. I'm very happy that that, uh, that was covered. Uh, and uh, I completely agree with you. And I, th- <clears throat> I think you with me. But before we go, I want to canvass with you, and uh, hopefully we won't take any offense on this, but um, I've always been puzzled by your personal um opinion. Okay, so this is what I understand is your personal position, and um, please forgive me if, if I err in what I recall because I've looked at your comments over time. Um, so I I understand that you're actually a conservative who is strongly pro-abortion, uh, and you are so, and I frankly struggle with the concept uh, because you advise, and again, this is what I understand, um, and, and I'm paraphrasing, that many blacks. Uh, live in poverty, commit crimes, and many or most are raised by single mothers who are welfare state uh, recipients. And then you go on to advise, as I understand it, that if abortion uh, was restricted, then this cohort would have uh, the most abortions, who have the most abortions, would then have a much larger birth rate of individuals who would be, uh, as you described, uh, to the disadvantage of wider society. So If that is your position, uh, in my opinion, that is bordering on um, eugenics and Margaret Sanger eugenics. And can a genuine conservative hold such views which are incompatible to conservative humanitarianism? Wouldn't a policy of pro-life to a sensible degree plus education reform and economic prosperity be more desirable than a eugenics um, those are your words, as I understand, having read them, and I do struggle with them. And I would appreciate if you could, uh, uh, you know, set out your position or clarify it.
0: Well, I'll, I'll throw out my position here comprehensively, uh, hopefully as clearly as I can. I, I never identify as a member of the conservative movement. I am a populist, leading Rockefeller Republican. I'm a socio political realist, but my views absolutely pull towards right doesn't mean that most people would look at uh, every view I hold and say that it's on the right. That would be a little crazy. It's not true. I try to respond to issues practically as they arise, not in an ideological fashion. Uh, I do. I am profoundly unnerved by... Uh, the rise of demographics in the country that are counterproductive in terms of their socioeconomic uh, influence, their socioeconomic impact. Uh, And I want to see people have as much opportunity as possible and I wanna see the country be as first world as possible. Uh, And so that means I'm very strongly favor family planning measures uh not just abortion but contraceptive and i favor uh people not having kids unless they're able to afford them that is the path to first world nationhood in any society and i support it here uh no i I am a big fan as as i think people know of margaret sanger although i think she's very badly misunderstood uh, by a great deal of, of people but uh she actually was opposed to abortion for instance a lot of folks don't know that but she was uh and she was very outspoken about that uh but uh my my perspective is that by giving people of any race ethnicity religion whatever the ability to not reproduce when they're unable to afford uh, family life you give them the ability to better themselves and ultimately better society and then if down the road they're in a position where they can have a, a child they can have it uh, hopefully ideally in a uh committed relationship uh with uh someone else uh so you know the obviously the the best case scenario is a husband and a wife raising a child in a traditional nuclear family unit. I do want this in the way that I think it's fair to say, virtually everyone who is right of center, let alone right wing, wants this. We all want the same thing. I just have a different way of getting there. I take a more practical approach than, you know, promoting uh, abstinence and this or that or the other thing, which, you know, the, these policies don't work. So I, I think that people. Uh, can make their situation better, be more uh, satisfied with their lives, be more economically productive, and be more of a credit to their community if they are not out there having kids they can't afford. And abortion is an excellent tool to uh, to prevent these people from getting saddled with something that w- would be severely detrimental to them uh, and to the community, uh, to society on the broadest level. Uh, so that's where I'm coming from. It's fundamentally a pro-social, pro-individual, rights point of view that I don't think is uh, left leading although you know some people might say as much if they want to say that that's their business
1: yeah the um, you do appreciate that looking at your views uh, as you tweeted without um, some expansion uh, one could uh, take umbrance at it which I think a large number of, of commentators have but you certainly addressed it and um You uh, are coming from, as I understand it, from uh, the betterment of society. But one has to be very, very careful about uh, how the betterment of society is implemented. And uh, we've seen many instances of uh, paternalistic uh, uh, bad effects. So thank you for clarifying it. And that's something which can be possibly addressed as, as well. But fortunately for states' rights um, and the Supreme Court, um, there is a little bit of pain at the moment uh, for the Republican Party. But that will pass, as you rightly said, once each state settles down. And why should the people in Wyoming be dictated to by the people in, uh, in Massachusetts and vice versa? So uh, uh, thank goodness for the founding fathers and the Constitution. I don't think it'll play that big a role in the in the election coming up. So we've got a long way to go, um, 11 months. But we don't. We only have six, to go, and I'll expand on that in a subsequent article, which we might discuss uh, at a future, uh, a future time. Joseph, thank you for uh, having me on. Hopefully, uh, uh, apart from my initial preamble saying that this might be uh, useless, uh, hopefully that hasn't turned out to be the case.
0: It's been polar opposite of useless. It's been a very substantive intellectual discussion, which people rarely see nowadays, but they find it uh, whenever you're chatting and uh, they tend to find it on my show. So uh, I'm very pleased with how things have turned out. And thank you very much, Shep, for stopping by. It goes without saying, I do hope to speak with you before the 2024 election, preferably more than once.
1: Yep, we'll do that. And uh, when I have something to say, And uh, I'll I'll be in touch and we can progress that. And thank you for what you're doing. You're bringing a lot of interesting viewpoints, uh, which you don't get anywhere else. Uh, And uh, it's good to have an alternative to red meat. So keep on doing what you're doing. Thank
0: you, Shep, and uh, uh, you provide much the same. So uh, I, <laughs> I, I must commend you for that. And everyone, thank you very much for having tuned in tonight. I trust you had uh, you've derived as much value from this chat as Shep and myself have. Uh, please do stay safe, be well, and cheers. Mm-hmm.